You know, it's funny that vulnerability is a powerful thing. Uh, it seems like a paradox because the world tells us that to hide your fears, mask your weakness, cover what you don't know will bring gain and power and worth. But the reality is that the most influential people are those willing to humble themselves and express their struggles um, because it speaks to our common experience. The interview you're about to hear is with someone who is willing to admit their brokenness and express a deep-rooted hope that brings lasting change. Uh, two things that we would request. If you like what you hear, please share. Uh, we do know that tons of people are going uh, through similar circumstances um, and have that uh, common experience with the interviewee. Um, also, consider supporting Fish Food so that we can continue providing consistent content. Go to www.fishfood.me or me and click support and it will carry you to a link where you can become a patron. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello folks, this is your host Corey Pelton and this is Fish Food, providing morsels of hope to a hungry world. And, and so, I mean, I had, the last time I had seen my brother cry was in the courtroom when I was sentenced to life in prison. He burst into tears. I didn't actually see him, I heard him. In this episode of Fish Food, we welcome Mr. Mark Casson. Mark is, a, uh, is an elder in his local church. He is the executive director of Metanoia Prison Ministries. And we talk about everything from his incarceration to how he met his wife in prison to the difficulty of speaking the truth in love uh, through the gospel to family members. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, I'm here with Mark Casson from Metanoia Ministries, the director. Is that your, is that your title, is the director uh, of I actually Metanoia? Work- I'm bald, for those who can't see me, so I wear two hats. Oh, we'll uh, take pictures. They'll see you. <laughs> I have, uh, I'm the executive director of Metanoia Prison Ministries, which is a standalone 501c3, and I'm the director of prison ministry for Mission in North America, which is the outreach arm of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. So I'm M&A PCA. Gotcha. All those, all those acronyms, yes. lots of them. Uh, so now how did you, how long have you been involved in Metanoia? I've been involved with Metanoia since 2007. Uh, I was asked to be on the board of directors, and then I became the executive director in 2008, and I've served in that role ever since. And I've been with, with Mission North America. We partnered with them in 2000, uh, the end of 2009, but really 2010. We'll just call it 2010, right, full-time. Right, So how did you, what led up to you, how did you get interested in, in prison ministry? Um, well, I was in prison for a lengthy period of time. I was converted to Christ in a county jail and right after my conversion, converted on a Thursday, read the pocket New Testament, the Psalms and Proverbs six times, cover to cover over the course of a weekend, cried out to God and confessed every sin I could ever remember. I, I memorized one scripture, which was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And so I went to court Monday morning, I, I uh, told my attorney I was gonna plead guilty and being a good attorney, she tried to talk me out of it. I was facing life plus 14 years in the state of California, which would have been a minimum of 30 years probably mm-hmm. before I ever saw the light of day. And then uh, I was facing the death penalty from the army. 
uh, for the crimes I had committed. And so um, I told her I was a Christian. I tried to evangelize her with a little bit of knowledge I had, which wasn't a whole lot. Um, but uh, ultimately, we went into court, and, in, and she, we, we stood up, and she said my client wishes to change his plea from not guilty to guilty. And for whatever reason, to this day, I don't know why, uh, the district attorney stood up, and he amended the complaint in open court, and he dropped three of the four charges against me. Wow. So it uh, spared me 14 years of incarceration. So I got saved on a Thursday. I got great grace poured out to me on, on a Monday in, in sparing me 14 years of incarceration. Um, and I was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in the California system. Uh, six weeks later, I was at uh, Corcoran State Prison uh, in Corcoran, California, and um, uh, got a letter from the United States Army, um, perhaps the most miraculous thing of all. It reduced me in rank to private, and it discharged me under UCMJ, that's Uniform Code of Military Justice, Chapter 14.5, Misconduct, <laughs> under conditions other than honorable but not dishonorable. That's uh, wow. I mean, only something God can do. I mean, there are men and women who've been discharged, uh, dishonorably discharged for drunken driving and, and things like that. And I have attempted premeditated murder and got another than honorable, but not dishonorable. So wow. my story, um, I mean, my whole life, but especially from the time I was converted at the age of 21, is one of being, uh, um, of God blessing me, pressed down, shaken up and overflowing, as the scripture says. So when I was, uh, I spent 15 years in prison, 15 and a half total, uh, 15 as a Christian, and I spent that entire time studying God's Word and taking Bible courses where they were offered and uh, correspondence things and reading the Puritans and reading Reformed theology and hearing Reformed messages and um, and so, and how, did you take, how did you take courses from prison? How do, how do you do that? Uh, there's a couple of different ways. Uh, back in the day, um, back in the early 90s, prisoners still got something known as the Pell Grant. You still could qualify. It wasn't until 96 that. Wow. that they did away with that. Congress uh, changed the law. And so because you don't have an income in prison, you, you qualify as a low-income person. And you could get the grant. And so colleges, uh, at the time, I took about four classes from a place called Reform Bible College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's now called Kuiper College. Um, but uh, they were through correspondence. They'd send us all the books, and we'd do the work and send the lessons in, and they'd send the grades back. Then there was a, um, a very fascinating thing happened. There was a, 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 a liberal Pentecostal college in, in Oakland, California called Patton Bible College, and Priscilla Patton was the founder, and she would go to prisons and set up campuses on the prison, and she'd get the local Pentecostal uh, people to teach the courses. But in God's dark providence, um, uh, one of the guys that was going to teach had a heart attack. And so she called the chaplain there, who was a Sovereign Grace Baptist, and said, do you know anybody who wants to teach? And he called Reverend Vernon Paloma, who was the head of the RCUS, that's the Reformed Church of the United States. So I got my liberal Pentecostal theology <laughs> courses taught from a Reformed pastor. Um, and so uh, it was just amazing. I studied New Testament Greek at Corcoran. The chaplain had a class, so we used Machen's New Testament Greek for Beginners um, book. Uh, Bob, uh, Bob Dendalk, who was then the president of Westminster Seminary in Escondido, he loved uh, prisoners and he would send his students into four prisons every month and he paid for it out of his own, he had his own foundation and he paid for the, them to go. He also sent, so, sent us uh, every book in the PNR catalog, uh, Presbyterian Reformed, and every book in the Banner of Truth Trust. And I was, my job was to be the librarian and so if I, if I needed to be a librarian, I needed to read those books. So I availed myself of reading them. And then when I moved to Soledad Prison for the next 11 years, where I spent the last 11 years of my incarceration, we had no reform teaching in the chapel or anything else. But 
Bob sent another entire library there. And so if you were struggling with something like baptism, I'd say, come on in. And, and I'd give you John Moran Baptism or William the Baptist or some other book, uh, uh, To a Thousand Generations by Douglas Wilson. And, and then I'd say, read that and then let's come back and talk about it. And so that was wow. kind of my ministry for those years there. I was the uh, uh, education guy in the chapel is what they called <laughs> me. Um, and so uh, I just got the chance to read a lot of books that I don't have the time to read now, right. but I'd love to. I mean, I have a bunch of books at home. Every time I go to a conference, I come home with new books. And um, when you're involved in full-time ministry and as much traveling as I do and a family and children and all that stuff, uh, reading is a, a I mean, <laughs> my wife's on vacation right now and I've right. got three books with me on this little trip over the weekend and I'm, I'm actually enjoying quiet time and, and able to read, but I, I miss my daughters too and my wife, so. Yeah. Uh, it's a trade-off. Yeah. How many daughters do you have? Two, uh, ages six and nine. Okay. Excellent. Um, and if, I'm, if I understand right, you met your wife while you were in prison. I did. In fact, uh, um, there was a guy that uh, for two years I was the only um, Presbyterian, if you would, a Reformed guy on the yard at Soledad out of about 120 Christians. And some, that, I love my brothers of, of other uh, uh, churches and denominations and, and beliefs, but uh, it can be lonely. And so I prayed and prayed that God would bring somebody who was like-minded. And, and he brought me a guy in 1995 named Nathan. And Nathan and I would pray together every day. And he was new to the Reformed faith, and so I kind so of— So you pray for a Presbyterian <laughs> to be imprisoned with you? To, yeah, I knew there were other, I knew there were others, <laughs> right? And so I just prayed that the Lord would bring one of the others to me. He was already incarcerated, uh, uh, or that He would change the mind of some of the brothers that were there. Right, and you know, right. somehow let's have somebody to share the deeper truths with. So it's not you're not just in argumentation about things. Mm. Um, and so Nathan and I, my daily prayer was that God would bring me a wife someday. And he encouraged me in 1995. He said, "Hey, why don't you change that prayer and ask you to God to bring you a wife before you get out." And that way, when you're not looking for a wife with a, a, a felony conviction when you get out of prison. And I'm thinking, this guy's a genius, right? Like, so we, uh, uh, I started praying that. And eventually, Nathan got out around 2000, 2001, and we kept in touch. And um, when my wife moved to California, one of the only people she knew in the whole state, she had a distant relative that, she, that lived there, but she, that she hadn't seen in 20-something years. But she knew Janet. Uh, um, who became Nathan's wife. And so she hung out with them and went to church with them and, you know, they got married. And so they, they asked me one day, hey, there's this woman out here who just moved to California, doesn't know anybody, would you write her and encourage her? And I was, sure. I, I, it was a simple request to me. I had no, right. well, they went to her and said, hey, there's this guy in prison and, you know, would you write him? And she said, no. She knew they were matchmaking <laughs> and, and I didn't. And so she put off for like six months and then finally she said, uh, if he writes me, I'll write her back. So on November 30th of 2001, I wrote the first letter to her, thinking nothing of it. And then she wrote me back. And by the fourth letter or so, January, we were in love. And I fell in love with my wife before I ever saw a picture of her. Um, I fell in love with the person she is. And she's a beautiful woman. We have two beautiful daughters. Um, and she courted, we courted in the visiting room. She started visiting me in April of 2002. And we visited for the next almost two years uh, and courted in the visiting room. It's beautiful to sit down with somebody across the table, open the scriptures and have conversations for um, five hours uh, and, and not have any distractions. No, I don't understand why people date and go to movies when they um, 
when you're in a movie, all you do is smell perfume and smell her hair and, 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 and are tempted to, to touch her and things like that. And you're not learning anything about her other than how good she smells. Right. And she's not learning anything about you other than how good you smell. And so to me, going to movies, a, a dumb idea for <laughs> you don't know anything about the person. But go and sit down, and, and, and there's no temptation to sin in the visiting room. There's guards around, you know. You're, so you get to just really, we, we had 10 baby names for boys and 10 baby names for girls, and we had uh, uh, talked about our future life together. We read scripture together. We sang, you know, very quietly together uh, songs and things like that, and it was just beautiful. And, wow. and so uh, I got out on February 4th, uh, uh, February 19th, 2004, and we got married on May 28th. So it takes about 90 days to get a wedding, throw it together right from scratch. So, um, and uh, another blessing, we were told we had less than 2% chance to have children. And uh, after years of prayer and, and trying, and, and God provided our first daughter, Eliana, whose name means my God has answered. Wow. Um, and then now we have Joel as well, three years later after that. So um, life is good. That's excellent. So you, you've you've got uh, to be you know going kind of going back to how you got to Metanoia Ministries. You, you've got some street cred to be able to <laughs> to, to be the director for Metanoia Ministries. Well, it's funny you bring that up because uh, just this Saturday I was training volunteers uh, here in the Greenville area to go into Perry Correctional to this mentoring ministry that we've started there, and I always tell them, act real don't put up any facade be mm. yourself mm. if you're the straight-laced guy who doesn't even ever think about breaking the law praise god for that that he made you that way don't think that you have to have some sort of street cred because when i was in prison i wanted when people came in i would i would listen to the ex-convict and, and okay he's making it on his own but i wanted to listen more to the guy who never got busted for anything i wanted mm. to know what it was like to to live a straight-laced life wow. and so they have as much credibility in my mind as anybody else now I really have street cred with the knuckleheads. So if I go to evangelize in a prison, the knuckleheads will listen to me because I've been there more than they'd listen to somebody who hasn't. But the guys who are already saved and they're looking to get out and their plans, I'm hoping they're going to look at the guy who's straight-laced and you know, serving God and loving his wife and, and loving his employer and doing well. I, I hope they look at them sure. with, with as much or more credibility because they never made the stupid mistake. That's good <laughs> to hear. The stupid choice, right? Yeah, that's really good to hear. Um, you know, from this side and thinking through, because I have visited some prisons before, from an outside perspective, it feels very intimidating. Um, but so, so what, here, giving you an opportunity for a little bit of a pitch for Metanoia Ministry and what you're looking for and what you're doing here. Um, so from my perspective, going in, very intimidating, but what do you see, what do you need um, to be able to do effective prison ministry from the church? I guess I would have to ask the question. You're not the first person to say that it's intimidating, but let me, uh, before I answer, let me ask you a question, Re reverse the interview role. What was intimidating? Is it the fence with the razor wire? <laughs> is it the clacking of the, the doors? Uh, is it the officers who are there? Or is it the fact that you're going into a place that's got a bunch of wicked people in it? I mean, which, what, what yes. part, is it all of it? Yeah, it probably is. Because but, if, if it's mostly the wicked people, then the intimidation is false. Because right. the moment you walk into church, you're surrounded by wicked people. The moment you walk into Walmart, there's wicked people. Everywhere we go, there's no one who's not wicked. Now, those who are in prison are feloniously wicked, uh, if that's a, a word. And, and so their wickedness rises to a different level, perhaps. 
but it doesn't rise to a different level than any other wickedness that we can think of. In other words, um, if we stop to think who Paul the Apostle was, he was Saul of Tarsus, the first terrorist to terrorize the Christian church. He was breathing threats and murder, Luke says. He was wreaking havoc amongst the churches. That, that's the guy that God saved on the road to Damascus, right? Imagine what happens when Ananias, how intimidated was Ananias to have to go? He even tells the Lord, I've heard of this guy, his reputation, God, you really want me to go see this guy? And God says, go, he's going to be a servant of mine, and I'm, you're, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for the kingdom's sake. But think about Ananias going in there and opening that door and going into Saul. Like, I have to wonder, did he have a knife under his cloak? Was he scared that Saul might turn around on him? You just don't know, right? And how did Saul feel? Like, how many people did Saul kill that Ananias knew? Right. Right? Personally responsible for it. Did he know? Maybe family members. Well, now Saul knows some guy's coming up the stairs. He's coming over here. Is he going to kill me because I killed his family? You know, who knows? But Brother Saul's the first word he said. And so I would encourage people, don't be intimidated by the prison. I believe, I actually tell the people that I train, I think you are safer inside the prison than you are out here on the streets. There's a lot more weapons out here. There are a lot more accidents that cause harm. In prison, even the non-believers will protect volunteers who go in. They under, there's this beautiful thing. Jesus says in Matthew 25, um, that great story when he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats at the end of the age. And he's not going to separate the sheep. He's not going to put those people who've read Calvin's Institutes and who, who go to coffee shops and talk about theology. He's not putting them on his right hand. The people he's putting on his right hand are the people that he, uh, uh, that went to the poor and fed the poor, hungry, or went to the hungry and fed them. They went to the thirsty and gave them something to drink. They clothed the person who was naked. They didn't say, how'd you get to be naked? Well, I'm not going to enable you. They clothed them. And then they went to the people who are sick and visited them, and they went to the prisoner in prison and visited them. Those are the ones that, well, when do we do this, Lord? When you did it to least of these, my children, you're doing it unto me, right? And so when you go in there, you're demonstrating this love by being there that those men, even the unbelievers, recognize it. And they would do anything to protect you if something were going to happen. If a riot jumps off and you're inside, you're going to be safe. You may say something that offends the worst guy in there and he's mad. He's not going to move on you because they'll kill him. They will die protecting you. And so don't be afraid to go to prison. It's just a little city. It's a little city with a fence around it is all it is. And, and Berlin had a city around it, uh, um, and we went there, uh, right? And, and other places, there's other, other cities in the world that are walled. Uh, um, in fact, if, I, if my memory serves me, the heavenly city has walls on all sides of it, right? And so we shouldn't be afraid of a walled city. Uh, um, we should, we should want to go there because there are human beings made in the image of God who need to hear the gospel, who need to have reconciliation uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we really believe our theology that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, then that means there are brothers and sisters that are there. That's right. And, you know, and, and that was my experience, is that the fear going in dissipates because people were so gracious and so kind and um, uh, you know, the women who were with us going in left wanting more, wanting to build those relationships. And that, that's, a, that's a very good, very good word. And, and it's true. I, I'll be honest. I'm more comfortable. The prison, the church in prison is more real. It's more, uh, um, in my mind, true and grassroots 
than the church out here, the institutional church out here. There are churches in, our, in my own denomination that I would fear going into uh, because either I don't have the education that they have, I don't have the cars that they drive, I don't wear the clothes that they wear, I don't run, I'm not, in, I'm not from South Carolina. And so even in this state, there are churches I'd be, I'd be afraid to walk into culturally because I came from New York. I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider. I felt it in Tennessee. I, I tried to break into circles and in, in, in social circles. And I actually had a lady tell me, I know where you came from. I know who you are. And it's, I mean, she didn't mean any harm by it, but she's telling me, I, you're not in my circle. Wow. Right? And it's true. It's very true. The church out here, the church in the United States, I'll, I'll give you an example. I go to First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga. Scotty Perbasco, who was the, his father founded the SunTrust Bank system to, it was a way to pay for Coca-Cola bottling. Well, he was an elder at that church. Generous, generous man. I think he was worth $186 million when he died. Is Scotty going to invite the homeless person that's been coming to our church who's in a wheelchair? Is he going to invite him to his house? And is that homeless guy going to invite Scotty to lunch? No. But you know what? If they were in prison and Scotty was still Scotty and the homeless guy was still the homeless guy, they'd have fellowship, sweet fellowship, because the socioeconomics would not separate them because they, they, aren't, they don't exist. The most Scotty can get from the canteens $100 a month, and the most this guy can get is $100 a month, and they both work in the laundry next to each other. There's an equalization that goes on that doesn't exist out here. The church out here, it gets separated by all sorts of things. Social economics, in my opinion, are, are even bigger than race. Um, even the people that go to churches that are uh, uh, racially integrated, they, they typically are socioeconomically equals. Um, they, they, they go to colleges and things like that, or, or they all, all are high school level, you know, tradesmen, things like that. But it, it's not so much race, it's socioeconomics. And, and the poor haven't learned to love the wealthy yet well out here, and the wealthy haven't learned, loved to learn the poor. But in prison, you can have three doctorates and, and six master's degrees, and another guy can have a drop out of high school in the sixth grade. And you know what? You're both doing dishes in the culinary and you're both talking about the same things, and you're both allowed to you wear the same clothing. And so all of the stuff that separates us doesn't exist in prison. It, what does exist is the fact that we're sinners, and we're sinners saved by the blood of Jesus. And that is the equalizer that, that, that is, is beautiful. And so the worship is pure. Uh, God, God, if you can raise your hands on a yard, if you're outside on a yard praising God and there's a bunch of wicked people, hell's angels and bikers and gangsters and everybody else is around there and they're watching you and you can raise your hands in, in worship, you think I'm not going to raise my hands in a church where no one else is raising their hands? Absolutely, because I don't expect my brothers and sisters to judge right. me. And so uh, it, it's just people appreciate, one of the things they appreciate about me, they tell me all the time, I feel like you're genuine or you're so transparent. And it's like, well, that's how you are in prison. You talk to one another about sins. You try to get along. I don't know the last time. When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody where they just sat down and said, hey, let's talk about our sins and let's pray for one another. And we don't do that out here. Mm -hmm. Because why? I don't think it's shame. I think it's fear. Oh, sure. It's fear Absolutely. that we're going to be ostracized. Or, mm -hmm. or if somebody really knew what was in my heart, they're going to really, you know, I'm going to lose everything. Well, Comparison, fear, all the, yeah. What do you have to lose in prison? Mm-hmm. Right, everybody knows you're there for something, right. and so the, the the need to be transparent and, and help one another with our sin struggles is really uh, much more prevalent there. Wow. So, 
I'm always looking for the church out here that even resembles. The closest one I found was in Sandtown in Baltimore back in 2010. Um, uh, Thurman Williams was the pastor. I walked in the first time. Um, it was my first official thing with M&A, and I was there to present the ministry during a lunch thing. And, and he told, he, you know, this is a, Sandtown in 2010 was the deadliest town in part of America, pretty much. Gangs, it's inner city, it's the hood. People, white people from the suburbs come in to go to church there. It's a multiracial ch uh, uh, church. Um, and he's, the first thing he said was, um, one of our 16-year-olds was gunned down across the street on Friday night, and he hadn't told his wife, and his wife collapsed. And I, I mean, but, the, but the, um, the lament that came up during that worship service was really powerful. But their music, their style of worship was, I told him, I said, this was the closest I've been to worship in prison. And, and at that time, I'd been out for six years, and I said, you know, you're the closest. And I, I continue to tell them, I haven't found any church that's even remotely close to the worship I felt that I felt at your church. Wow. And, and that was in the hood. Yeah. Wow, you've really gotten a beautiful picture of what fellowship and worship ought to be. I mean, many of us, if you stop to think about the church, and you've been a pastor for a long time, maybe I'm, maybe I'm j jagged, but... To me, most of us don't want to suffer for the kingdom's sake, right? We'll write a check, and we may pay our 10%, and most of us don't, according to research that the Pew is research and others, that Barna and others have done. Most only do 2 to 3% of their, is their so-called tithe. Uh, but, but how many of us actually want to get into a messy relationship with somebody um, that's going to cost us time, that may cost us a little money, and, and, and the, the, the thing we forget is what the Apostle Paul said is, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, then why do you act like you haven't received it? In other words, all the time we, we work hard and we think, look what my hands have built. Right. It's not. Look what the Lord has done. He's the one who gave us the job in the first place, gave us the skills to have the job, keeps the company going. I mean, God's in control of all of it. Right. And we forget that in our, in our pride. And so... Uh, um, the biggest hurdle we have to overcome, in my mind, is encouraging people that, hey, Christ wants us to suffer for the kingdom's sake. And that's how we're supposed to live our lives. Not to say, I'll take so much suffering and, oh, I've had enough. No. You know, um, I don't look at my time in prison as suffering at all. I still belong there. I should have been executed, so it's grace that I'm not. And it's only by God's grace that I'm out here. I mean, I don't know if I told you this before, um, when I was paroled in 2004, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. And during that time, in, in his first term of three years, he came in as, and replaced Gray Davis, who was a conservative a Democrat, and he was too conservative for California, and they kicked him out. And they brought in a Republican who was more moderate uh, than, a, than a Democrat. Well, um, 14,400 lifers went to parole hearings in his first term. 121 of us got out. So if you do that math, it's point zero zero six eight or eight six, whatever the number is, but extremely, extremely small. And I was one of those. I went to two of those 14,400 parole hearings, and I, I got out in my second one there. Uh, it was my sixth overall hearing. Um, but I don't know why God let me out. It's an act of utter grace that I'm here, right? right. And so um, I, see, I see the world a little different than many people in that everything I see is God's grace. Yeah. It's all grace. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the army before. What, what did the army have to do with it? I, I'm just trying to hear from a listener's perspective. I know I've heard your story 
Um, so I was, uh, when I, going back to my childhood, um, my father died when I was seven. And all I ever really wanted to do, uh, when I was eight, I saw a movie called Billy Jack. I don't know if you saw the movie before, but it was a movie about a Green Beret. He was a half-breed Native American white, um, and he was in some town out west, and they were racist, and they were picking on the Native Americans. And so he defended them, and ultimately takes on the sheriff and his whole force, and puts a beating on them, and, uh, he, and ultimately gets holed up on a reservation, and the feds come in, and, and there's a shootout, and, and ultimately he surrenders because they raped one of the one of these uh, his girlfriend basically and so i saw that guy and i said i want to be like him like he became my my uh, uh, prototypical uh, guy and so i spent my youth um, playing with guns and studying martial arts and fighting and 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 the one thing i didn't have was the moral compass but when i was 17 i joined the army between my junior and senior year and i was in the reserves and then i uh, went on active duty when i was 19 or 20 uh, went into army intelligence and i was a linguist stationed at the presidio monterey learning czech and slovak and that's when i committed the crime i uh, ultimately went to prison for but i would have uh, i'm still when i got out of prison i tried to go back in the army uh, the war was just ramping up in 2004 and, and the recruiter in Fresno was going to let me go in. He had approval from uh, somebody higher, but ultimately the state of California wouldn't let me off parole. <laughs> and so uh, by the time I was off parole, I was too old. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the military. I encourage people to serve. Um, and and I'm a, I see everything I do in the kingdom, I see as part of, uh, I'm a soldier for Christ and he's the captain of my salvation. And, and my, my niche area of service is uh, uh, in expanding the kingdom and fighting the, the war is in the prison system. And so I, I, I was ordained as a ruling elder. I am a, currently a ruling elder. I was ordained in 2006. So I've been a ruling elder for the past 12 years uh, in two different churches now. Yeah. So. You know, hearing your hearing the background, um, and you know, for the for the hearer's benefit, when I go to do these interviews, I send out a um, pre-interview questionnaire, and one of the questions I ask on there is, "What is what is a a, a current or past struggle that you're dealing with that um, uh, that has been a difficulty?" Um, and you went in a direction that I, I just didn't expect. <laughs> I, I know I, I did that intentionally. Good, actually. good. No, no. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's beautiful that you did that. Um, so you know, with all of this background and with all of the stories that you have from incarceration and what Christ has done, and even some of the the the, the gang uh, uh, conflict that you had while you're incarcerated. You picked a whole different story. What is the struggle that you mentioned in, in those pre-interview questionnaires? Okay, so I got to give a little bit of background. Um, in in the, uh, I'm from Western New York. Grew up in the town of Lockport, which is about 25 miles from Niagara Falls in Buffalo, uh, and so on the Erie Canal. And in 1982, my older brother, who's seven years older than me, he moved to California. And he lived in California for his entire adult life, uh, basically from the time he graduated college. Uh, a week after graduation, he moved there. And so um, uh, I, I was, I wouldn't say I wasn't close with him, but when I moved to California in the late 80s to go to the Presidio for the year I was out there, um, I would spend weekends every once, in, you know, probably every other weekend or once or twice a month, I'd spend the weekend up at his house uh, um, in San Jose area. 
and then I'd take the bus back to uh, Monterey. I didn't have a vehicle. Um, and then there were times when I, would, I wouldn't stay at his house, but I was fighting in San Jose. I was fighting, underground fighting um, in the airport. There was a, a building there, and they advertised, you know, they'd have these fights, and they made, the movie, they made the movie Fight Club about it, about really? that type of thing. But yeah, yeah, I did that for a uh, better part of a year, at least one weekend a month. There was another friend of mine at the Presidio who was a, a U.S. Olympic, junior Olympic champion Taekwondo guy, and, and he and I would go up and fight. Um, anyway, um, so I had a violent background. Well, when, the, when, I, when I got saved, as soon as I got to Corcoran Prison, um, I wrote a letter to every one of my family members, the same letter, basically telling them about Christ, telling them that, yes, I'm in prison, um, and I confess my sins, I did these things, but you guys are sinners too. And so I, I named particular sins in this letter that I sent to my family. So I called my mom, and she said, well, I got your letter, and your pen's very sharp, and it's cut deep wounds. And you just you need to be prepared for that. So then I called my brother, and he told me, he said, listen, whatever you've got going with Jesus, that Jesus stuff is good for you, but if that's what you want to talk about with me, don't call. And I can still remember, I can see myself. It was like an out-of-body experience almost. I can look down on myself in the, in, on the phone at Corcoran over in the C-section of the building, and I just burst into tears like, what's happened here? And so my brother would visit me a couple of times a year, um, and every, once a year, he'd bring my mom out from, from New York. She'd come out and stay sometimes up to a month when she retired. And um, they'd come down twice to visit and, and things like that. It was nice, but I had to watch my tongue. I couldn't, you know, I, every letter I write, it doesn't matter who I write it to, I will say grace to you and peace in the name of God, the Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I pray this finds you well, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll sign it you know, by grace or something like that. And I, I did that with him even when I wrote him letters. Uh, but I, I, I struggled with actually having a conversation, a spiritual conversation. So in 2013, my wife and I des decided that um, because of what was going on in the prison ministry, we needed to move to Chattanooga from California. And when I was out of prison, um, I lived about, from Fresno to San Jose is about three hours. So I lived three hours away for the first, uh, from 2004 until 2010. And then in 2010, we moved to about a, a, an hour and a half closer. So we were only an hour and a half away. And, and I saw my brother four or five times a year, either at my house or his house. We'd always do Thanksgiving and Christmas. So if it was Thanksgiving at his house, it was Christmas at my house or vice versa. Um, and I thought nothing of it. We had, he had his life. Uh, he'd been in California his whole life. And... So then when we moved, uh, Friday we drove up to his house, we spent the night, and Saturday we're packed, you know, our, our, our furniture was already on the road. And, and so uh, we packed up our cars, and, and as we were saying goodbye, um, he burst into tears. Like, he wasn't going to see my daughters grow up. And at the time, my one daughter was just a, not even a year old, my youngest, and my oldest was uh, four. And, and so, I mean, I had, the last time I had seen my brother cry was in the courtroom when I was sentenced to life in prison. He burst into tears. I didn't actually see him, I heard him. And so uh, uh, it dawned on me at that moment that I had done something wrong with my brother, that I hadn't, uh, by not inviting him more into my life and, and letting, I had this view that he's, he's an unbeliever, I'm a believer, I should hang out with Christians and he should, Sorry if I just hit my chest. I might have hit the microphone too. But I, I had this view that I should uh, that I should hang out with believers only, and and not make friends of the world. And Jesus says, if you don't, if you love me more than your brother, your mother, your, you know, you have to love me more. And I just I had a bad view of that. 
I thought it meant I shouldn't associate with. And so um, it instantly changed, but it was sort of too late. Well, then the following year, my brother came to, to Tennessee. He was in Atlanta on business and he took a couple extra days and came up and saw us. And in the following year, he's talking about, hey, Karen and I are gonna move to Chattanooga. So they came out and they found a, found a house. Um, and then I actually drove both two of their cars across the country. I, I flew back on consecutive weekends and, and drove them over. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was a great time. I love doing that stuff. So uh, anyway, uh, um, so now he li he's lived in Chattanooga for the last two years and, and we have dinner in each other's homes every week. Uh, he comes to my daughter's soccer games or if they play sports, he's there. Uh, they sing at church, he comes for that, but he doesn't come to church regularly. But I still haven't had the spiritual conversation with him. If we're having dinner at either house, we pray. And, 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 and we hold hands and we pray and usually one of my daughters will pray. And I know that that moves him. I, I could see it. I sometimes look and watch him. And, and, I, and so on the one hand, I think we're doing the right thing. On the other hand, I need everyone who's listening to pray for me that God will give me the courage to say to my brother, what do you believe? What's gonna happen when you die? Who is Jesus Christ? And, and to have a real conversation with him, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I, I have that phone call in my mind from 28 years ago that he's going to say, I don't want to talk to you about this, and, and that that will disrupt the otherwise great relationship that we have. You know, we do things together. We've gone on trips together, vacations to Nashville and other places, and, and so uh, um, I enjoy that. I, I true, genuinely enjoy having him in my life. So all that to say that uh, the reason I brought that one up was because most of your listeners have no clue about any of the struggles of incarceration, mm. which in my mind are small. Mm. Um, but they probably, some of them can identify with this, where they have a family member or a very close, close friend, lifelong friend, that they just haven't had the, the courage to have that gospel conversation with. Mm. Mm. And so uh, um, it's funny because I, I'm in some ways I'm a hypocrite. I encourage people all the time, hey, we pray, God, give me an opportunity to evangelize. And then we walk out of our house and in the moment we walk in the drugstore, there's 30 different opportunities to evangelize and we just don't take advantage of them. God's laid them all before us, but we don't. We're waiting for that sort of, we want the neon sign to say, go now, go now. And that never comes. For somebody to ask us yeah, the question. Or, right? Yeah, that's right. It never, it never comes. Mm. And so everybody we come into contact with, we're supposed to be salt and light to them. And, and so salt is tasty, mm -hmm. light is visible. So I'm showing, I'm showing my brother the gospel with, with light, but am I actually giving him something to taste, which I think is conversational. It's, it's, it's to meditate on, to chew on, to think about. So how is that different from when you initially approached him with the attitude that you had coming, you know, having become, <laughs> so because, you know, th there's a difference there. I, I think that's what you're trying to communicate. This well, when I, when, I was a, when I was young, my whole thing was, um, you're a sinner, and here's the sin, and you need to repent. And, and now it's a little bit different. Yes, there's repentance is needed, but my approach to evangelism is a lot less um, antagonistic, I suppose. They, they say there's no, no such thing as a, 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 the new convert. There's no one is, is, who's more uh, on fire than the brand new convert, right? But the brand, brand new convert doesn't know. Uh, there's more ways than one to teach somebody they're a sinner than to say, you're a wicked, vile sinner. <laughs> Right? right, and so uh, um, that approach seldom works. It didn't even work when Jesus used it. He he said people were a wicked generation, and 
And their response was to pick up stones and stone them. It may have been true, but it wasn't, it was, and I don't think he, you know, it was an attempted evangel evangelism, but um, I didn't catch the cue that he wasn't evangelizing, that he was more uh, pronouncing a judgment on those uh, religious people. So mm. <clears throat> ultimately I've learned there, there, there's better ways to have a conversation with somebody. Yeah, yeah. So, so in, in the process of that, that struggle, what um, provisions of Christ or, or, or his character or promises speak into you to go, okay, this, this changes my perspective on how I evangelize or what I need to do in the present. One, you're saying I need to have the conversation. Um, but are there any promises, provisions, or the character of Christ that, that speaks in to comfort you or to um, encourage you? Um, There's a scripture, and I'm probably, it's either Luke 6 or Luke 9, I'm pretty sure. Could be Mark 6 or 9 too. The harvest is uh, um, ready, but the laborers are few, right? Well, right before that, it says that Jesus looks out on the multitudes. It doesn't say he looks out on them with contempt or disdain or with an attitude that he was better than them. So he looked on the multitudes with compassion. And that's what's changed in me is that I think I've developed an attitude of compassion. And I think sadly, the Christian church as a whole the, in America, the United States evangelical church, we are not a church that's marked by compassion. If you think back, think back to the eighties when we were fighting abortion with a vehemence, what were we doing? We weren't being compassionate on those girls. We were calling them baby murderers, throwing blood on their vehicles. We were killing abortion doctors and blowing up their clinics. Um, while their sin is abhorrent and evil, um, where's our compassion? And we tend to have, I think every human being has that little Pharisee in them that says, at least I'm not like that person. You know, hey, I'm a good, I'm a good Christian. At least I'm not like that. Well, you're a good Christian, but you're very judgmental in, in, in the fact that you think you're better than these other people. And that's part of the issue with prison ministry is we at least say, at least I'm not like those guys in prison um, and let them rot there, right? A lot of Christians voted for very harsh penalties for crimes, which are equally as unjust. If, if, if a crime demands X as a punishment and you're less than X, you're unjust on the soft side. But if you're greater than X, you're unjust on the hard side. So if it, if it demands that you pay back what you stole plus two times 10% uh, uh, so that you suffer a loss and you pay, make them pay back twice what they stole in 20%, that's unjust. And if you make them pay back nothing, that's unjust. And so that's the problem with our justice system is that people wanted everyone to be tough on crime, tough on crime, but they weren't really looking at, is this just? Is it just to put a person in prison for 25 years to life for stealing a piece of pizza because it was his third felony? Is that just? Mm -hmm. I absolutely yeah. say, vehemently say, no, it's not. Right. I don't know about you if you have any felony convictions or not. If you don't, if you and I decided right now to leave where we are and to go rob the quickie mart on the corner and we get arrested, let's say we turn ourselves in and I automatically get 10 to 20 more years in prison for the same exact crimes committed on the same exact day at the same exact time at the same exact location. Is that just? Because of your history. Because of my history. I will automatically get 10 to 20 years. Even though? 
you're out and free and... It never goes away. Yeah. It, it was almost 30 years ago that I got arrested. Mm. It will be in September, will mark 30 years. It was September uh, um, 23rd of, tw of uh, 1988. But I'm just saying, there's, a, there's a, you ask most people and they'll say, yes, it is just. And I'll say, how? If two men commit the same crime, how, are we, how, is, the, how is the punishment being put to the person instead of to the crime? Mm -hmm. Biblical justice was always crime-related, not person-related. Yeah. And so the only time a person was even thought of is whether a murder was, was intentional or unintentional. That was distinguishing between manslaughter or not manslaughter. And, and it was manslaughter and murder. And so there's a beauty to me in biblical justice that Christians have lost. We've lost the idea that we're in covenant with one another. The American church, we forget the idea of covenant and community, right? We're all loners. Um, and so that's got to change in our thinking. And right. that's part of my job to, to encourage people as they get engaged in prison ministry that, hey, there's brothers and sisters down there that are, that are incarcerated that need the help of the church. The world is already going to tell them, you're not welcome here when you get out of prison. We want you in there a long time, and when you get out, we don't want you to live near us. We don't want you to have a job. We don't want you to have access to, to anything. And the church has to come alongside and say, we want you. We love you. We'll help you. We'll get through this. And, and, and the church has been acting like the world in many cases. Which is why when we, when we truly understand our sin, when we truly understand the justice and mercy of God, that the evangelism becomes more winsome, more mm -hmm. compassionate, more... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's my, a big... my brother's not any more or less wicked than I am. Right. And and anybody I come into contact isn't. Now they may, may be less pleasant to be around. They may be less pleasant smelling. They may have a, a rougher vocabulary. They may be less educated or more educated. I mean, uh, there's all those differences. But at the end of the day, if we were to if we were to look at God's perspective down, all He sees is blackness in every heart. Right? Every single heart. Which goes back to what you said about church and jail was so much richer because everybody was on a level playing field. That's right. And, yeah. and the fascinating thing in prison is you don't have to prove total depravity to anybody. Right. Right. right? So the first, the first convincing that you're a sinner has already been done. Right. Um, and, right. and the sad thing is the unbelievers in prison revel in their sin sinfulness. They like to boast about it and talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so those are the realities of that environment. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Do you think it's harder to evangelize, to share the gospel with, to tell the story of Jesus uh, with a family member than it is somebody outside your family? Yes. And do you think that, well, and, and this, is, Bible, this is, I'm, the, I'm partly speaking of my own experience too, is seeing that oftentimes it takes somebody else outside of the family sharing Christ with your family member, and they're much more willing to hear it from other people. Do you think that that's true. We should expect that. I do not want any listener to think that I am uh, um, condoning not having the conversation. But right. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own house. Right. Well, what does that mean? It means that you have honor everywhere else you go. I get honor from people in the church as an elder and I get respect uh, by virtue of my position. Um, but, uh, but my brother or those in my own house, they don't honor us because they see us more than those other people, right? My, my brother has seen me in anger respond to something in a bad way, and I've had to go tell him, I'm sorry, that's not how a Christian's supposed to respond. Mm -hmm. My brother has uh, uh, seen me uh, be rude to my wife, or uh, I mean, and my wife has seen me in my worst, right? My, so that's where I think that comes from, that idea, but I think it's definitely harder also because of the relationship. Now, in my case, I had the conversation with my sister really easily. 
because she didn't ever, no, never told me, don't talk to me about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So when, the first time I saw her in person when I got out of prison, now we corresponded throughout my incarceration, but the first time I saw her, I shared the gospel with her and I continued to and, and she became a believer. Um, my brother, on the other hand, had told me, don't do this. And so there's a certain amount of I've respected that, but on the other side of it, I grieve in the fact that I've been cowardly and not sitting down and saying, hey, let's at least have this conversation one time. Right. But right. hopefully, now there are, now the neat thing is, is where my brother moved, he, he's on a golf course and right down the street is an elder and his wife from my church. Um, and the day we were unpacking his truck, they stopped by with some sandwiches. And, and I told them later on, I said, you know, you're going to love my brother into the kingdom. They've invited him to go see an event when Franklin Graham was in town last year and they took him to dinner and then that. And so, so uh, um, I believe ultimately it's going to be that type of relationship that's going to open the door to a conversation and my brother will, will ultimately, if the Lord chooses to save him, then right. it'll be through something like that more than it will be from me. Right. So. I often see, it, you know, especially parents with kids, parents weeping, believing parents weeping over the unbelief of their children and just that hard wrestling, same thing you're experiencing with your, with your brother. What advice would you give to, uh, to somebody in the same position that you're in with their either kids or spouse or uh, relative? Um, I think it's the same with my daughters. Um, I have this view of discipline that when, I, when my daughters do something wrong, A, I don't want them to be so afraid of me that they're going to lie. B, I want them to realize that once the discipline has happened, they are forgiven. We're not bringing it up again. I make sure that we hug. My, my youngest daughter doesn't always like to hug me. And I tell her, Daddy loves you and you're forgiven. And, and so if I, I believe if I demonstrate that over the course of my children's lives growing up, that, that they, they're going to build in their own minds their image of God many times based on their father. And so uh, um, I want my daughters to know that there's a just God who's also a compassionate and forgiving and loving God. Um, and so parents that are, whose children have matured and they've left the home and they're, they're not walking with Christ, A, pray for them. B, pray with them. When they come to dinner or you're on the phone with them, just say, hey, do you mind if I pray for you real quickly? And, and, and if they say, no, don't, and they hang up the phone, that's their choice. My whole thing is never say no for somebody. You always ask the question and then they, you let them say no. And, and that's part of fundraising strategy actually is <laughs> I ask everybody to give and if they say no, then they say no, but I'm not gonna say no for them by not asking, right? right. Well, the same thing is true with, with, with parenting. Uh, um, and, and be consistently a good example for our, for our children to see, even if they're 25 years old. Let them see a godly man and a godly woman. Let them see your grief. But don't try to guilt them. Don't try to, manip- guilt manipulation's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Let's not do that. Mm-hmm. But let them see that, hey, I, I wish you would be in church. And I'm not telling you my life's ever been perfect in, in church. However, when you have, you know, there's a, in, in a counselor, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Uh, um, there is great wisdom in the church. There's great help in the church. The church should be, think about the first century church. They ate dinner together every day. How awesome is that? That means I got to cook once a week. Big <laughs> meal, big meal. But hey, once a week over six, seven days a week mm-hmm. to be around my Christian friends every day. What are we doing that we're so busy in this America that we can't do this? 
Name me one place where you've seen that happen. I do know churches do these things called dinners of eight. So like once a month, they pick eight people, you know, four couples get together, and so over the course of four months, they'll eat at each other's home one time. Woo, good start. How about now doing that every week you, you get together? Right. How, how, how much would my children benefit from being with other kids who are Christians and seeing other parents interact with their children? The community, the koinonia aspect of the church is yeah. so lost yeah. in American, even in, in, in the, the PCA, which I love, our denomination. My, I mean, I really love it. It's, it's wonderful to me. I've got both ends of the spectrum. That, back to that story of Sandtown. I go into that church in <laughs> Sandtown on a Sunday morning. That's my first official thing with MA, and I see this wonderful inner city church. That night, I'm out in Westchester County, Pennsylvania. I come around the bend, there's this giant white church. This thing is humongous. It's, you can, it's up on a hill, you can see it. I go out there, I go in, there's about 400 people there for evening worship, all white, all wearing ties and, and jackets. And, and I, 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 that's the contrast of the PCA. Right. That's the beauty of this denomination is, is you've got that on each end, there's room for all of it. Yeah because God is big. God is awesome. Uh, um, and what do I have doctrinally that he hasn't shown to me? And if he's shown it to me, then why do I act like he hasn't shown it to me? And why do I condemn another brother because he hasn't shown him the same thing, right? Whether it's the style of worship or whether it's in um, the order of worship or whether we're going to sing from the Psalms. I mean, there's a whole host of minutia that separate us and we love to create our boats. I think of it as a medieval castles. And, and we, we, you know, oh, you don't sing the Psalter? Well, there's a moat. I'm not going to fellowship with you. And you don't, uh, you don't sing this well, or do that? Uh, you use a guitar and a drum set? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a moat around that. And, and, and pretty soon we have all these little tiny communities of, of very small people. And so even within the church, even with one, one congregation, you'll have your little uh, I am of Saul and I am of Apollos and I am of whoever, right? I mean, that's right. That's right. It's nothing new. It happened in Corinth. It happened. It's happening today. So. Uh, uh, we just have to keep plowing on and serving the Lord. Yeah. So, thank you. Oh, so I hope it was worth it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Hearing God's grace in your life and your uh, humility and vulnerability to talk about a hard family situation, but the hope in Christ that's that's beautiful. Amen. God is. Uh, uh, if I can close with this, you know. My brother and I and my one sister, we all believe my dad committed suicide. There was no note, um, but he drove his car off the Erie, off a high bridge into the Erie Canal, uh, um, and it's really hard to do that if you're not intending to do it. Mm. Um, and there's a whole reason behind that. But so thinking that for mo you know for my life, um, I have this concept of God. I have to every day in my prayers remind me that God will never leave me nor forsake me. That He'll finish the work He started in me. That nothing could separate me from His love. Uh, that he won't leave. And, and, and listener trust the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, that he has promised us many great and precious promises. And if we, if we stand firm in trusting in him, um, even in the midst of the most struggle, that's the one interesting thing. The Christian life is not made for easy street. The Christian life is made for the struggle. For when you're in, when you're in the dungeon like Acts 16, or when you're in the lion's den like Daniel was, or when you're uh, uh, faced with uh, what Joseph was put through, if you don't have a, a God who loves you and you know that, then your religion is pitiable. It's 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 vain and fruitless. And so uh, um, uh, find the promises that are in the scriptures and trust them and stand on them and quote them to God and pray them to God and. 
And, and it doesn't mean your problems go away, but it means you have a joy-filled life, a life that, to live. As R.C. Sproul so famously says, Coram Deo, before the face of God. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful way to live. It, um, I love life, uh, in prison, out of prison. I, I, I think I'm a pretty joyful person, unless you're driving in front of me and you're one of those <laughs> idiots who doesn't know how to drive. <laughs> oh wait, that guy's made in the image of God. <laughs> so praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. Amen, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fish Food. Two things to remember if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. Also, consider supporting Fish Food so that we can continue providing consistent content. Simply go to www.fishfood.me or me and click support. That will take you to a link so that you can become a patron. And again, thank you for the support.